Welcome to The Healing Hour. This is the official podcast of The Girl Healer. I'm Hannah Olivia, the creator of The Girl Healer. The Girl Healer's aim has always been to make a difference and create change in the world and the people in it through healing. Whether that be through guidance, healing words, written quotes, music, intuitive readings, insightful conversations and spiritual healing. I hope that this is a space for you to learn, grow, reflect and heal. So today's show is all about healing with a psychotherapist and I was so excited about this episode because I really feel that it overlaps with the kind of work that I love and do. It's all just about transforming and inspiring a client to make change really. So today we have the amazing James Roston to talk to us all about psychotherapy and how we can use the tools to help a person change behavior, increase happiness and overcome problems. James has 12 years of experience in this field, so he is one of the best people to chat to on this topic. James and I chatted a few weeks ago, and I absolutely loved his energy, his honest approach to how we treat clients, and his undeniably vast knowledge in this field. As James states on his website, we live in a symptom-driven culture. Significant emphasis is placed upon treating presenting symptoms during an acute period of crisis. It's imperative to address underlying cause to promote long-term sustainable behaviour change, as well as addressing surface-level symptoms. Behaviour is a line of communication, and this is so, so true and something that I discuss often with clients of my own, especially the parents of children who are going through a really tricky time and having behavioural issues. So, James, thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast. Thanks for having me. I mean, what an introduction that was. <laughs> I was thinking, God, I want to listen to that guy. Um, that was um, that was an amazing uh, introduction. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, look, as we spoke a few weeks ago, um, it was it was it was always something I was going to do. I, I think, as you said, there we've got we've got a real uh, not just a crossover. I think an aligned practice. I think that. You know the world of psychotherapy has been um, has kind of evolved over the years uh, and presented in 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 different forms. Um, but there is this real sort of, uh, I think at times, spiritual simplicity that that sits behind it. So, yeah, I'm sure this next hour will be. Well, I know. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy the conversation. No oh, doubt. I can't wait. <laughs> so for anyone who knows very little or nothing at all about psychotherapists, does, like, can you just tell the viewers a bit more about what it is that you do? Mm. Uh, yeah, so as you said, I'm a, a clinical psychotherapist. I've, I've predominantly worked in uh, hospital settings throughout my career. Um, the, the world of psychotherapy sort of, it, it shares uh the, the the arena with with a sort of broader psychology input um psychotherapy is around the sort of treatment of mental health conditions and um as i say mine has, has been predominantly hospital based both on an inpatient and outpatient basis i i i sort of started in psychodynamic psychotherapy which is uh the sort of freudian approach the sort of sigmund freud that sort of forefather of um of of psychotherapy um and it is a fascinating area it's where a lot of the the sort of the sort of theories um 
sit and and inform a lot of the work um but the actual practice itself is is that very stereotype role that a lot of people will be aware of that kind of sitting on a couch or laying on a couch and uh and, and talking about your troubles and childhood, et cetera, why the consultant sits and nods and ums and ahs. Um, yeah. And it is slow practice, um, but, you know, there is a lot of science and theory to underpin it, and it does uh, it does return positive results. Um, but not, not particularly fashionable, I think, over recent years. It's, it's not one that has that has uh, has been there front and center we've got a lot of its its relations its newer relations that that take center stage and there's the likes of cognitive behavior therapy and uh, acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness etc although the likes of mindfulness are not not new practices they're about two and a half thousand years old but they are the, the the ones that you would see the NHS and nice guidance push forward so psychodynamics yeah. is where I started out uh, I then uh, practiced in that for a period and, and felt I was quite young at the time and, and felt actually there's got to be more to this there must be more I wanted I felt that I needed a more dynamic relationship with the patient and um, yeah because how did I you actually work- decide to get into it like that's the thing oh well <laughs> yeah so I'd always always been interested in psychology from when I was younger um, I used to uh, I used to be a competitive swimmer in my childhood and into youth, and went to the Olympic trials and national championships. Wow. And so there was a sort of sports psychology overlap that always interested me in school. Um, I then sort of uh, sort of moved more towards the fitness side of um, career path um, and worked as a personal trainer for a little while um, when I left school and then but was still interested in the sort of mind and the body and how we can sort of overcome challenges Mm. and then um, just become a bit disillusioned really um, I suppose as many of us do and ended up bumming around for a few years and, and believe it or not, ended up in the fire service. Um, I It was a long family tradition. Everyone's been in the fire brigade. And um, mm. I was like, I'm not going to do it. You know, uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to buck the trend and do something else. But I ended up falling into the fire service. But to be fair, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. Spent eight years there and crazily uh when after a, a job one day we'd gone back to this block of flats that there, there had been an incident of fire there and we was fitting smoke alarms for the, re- the other residents and there was a psychotherapist and she was talking to me and I was talking to her and then it sort of sparked this passion and weirdly uh I know we was talking uh, before we started recording about the universe and um and weirdly I then uh, hadn't hadn't sort of entertained the idea of college or psychotherapy or going back to study for maybe five or six years and then had this conversation with this psychotherapist yeah. and then the next day a prospectus turned up um, through the post of a college that I'd applied to years before um, wow. with all of these different courses and I was like this is weird uh, so I then set about enrolling in study uh, whilst doing the fire brigade and um because uh, we had a lot of downtime, so I thought I might as well put it to good use. Uh, ended up studying, uh, training, passing, going back to college, and uh, then qualified after two years. Uh, and then there was a job opportunity that came up at a psychiatric hospital, 
Uh, and I didn't really do anything about it. Literally didn't do anything. Just kept letting it pass, letting it pass, letting it pass. Then the closing date went and I thought, well, I may as well give them a call and see what they was looking for in terms of qualifications. Rang them up. Yeah. And I said, you know what? We've not filled the position. Would you like to come for an interview? And I thought, well, why the hell not? Went and had the interview. They then said, do you want to know if you're successful after? I said, why the hell not? I sat the interview, uh, had a conversation with them after. They then offered me the job. And within the space of 11 days, I'd left the fire service after eight years and started at this psychiatric hospital. So it was all a whirlwind. And I think if it, if I'd have had any longer period of time, uh, I probably wouldn't have, um, I probably wouldn't have done it and would still be in the fire service with these qualifications, not, not using them. Um, but so Do you know I, what I'm though? Just believer. to interrupt, yeah, yeah just to on. interrupt. I'm a true believer though that it's so interesting how, like, I'm always telling people to spot the signs. But you know, you're in the fire service, you start chatting to someone who's like a psychotherapist. Then within eight days, everything changes. And I'm a true believer that. It was your line of work, but you weren't really sure which way you were going and you were literally pushed into it. I think sometimes when we don't make the move or we don't go in the right direction, and I'm not saying there's a right and a wrong direction, but maybe the direction that your sole path was meant to go in, you are kind of pushed in that direction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I think that there is opportunities that present themselves and I think we have to be sort of open to them and and, and aware of them. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of experiences through the fire service that inform my practice now. Um, and I wouldn't change it for a work for the world. I, f- I think that there's, you know, all, although they, you know, on paper, they would be completely different, completely different worlds, but I think there is a massive overlap, um, in, in what I experienced and understand or understood from relationships, working relationships and, 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 sort of the difficult and tragic circumstances that yeah I, I was just about in. to say the exact same thing yeah you often mm. find that I know of firefighters that are now counsellors so you're right yeah. there it's, it's literally like a full circle isn't it yeah yeah I always think that you know for me I, and I say it to, to patients sometimes that you know I don't I don't often disclose it but but in some instances I'll, I'll whether asked or um, if I do disclose it with purpose that you know some of the instances that we were called to, you know, those casualties, they didn't have a choice. And so the circumstances surrounding their position and all the time that we have air in our lungs, we we have a choice. We have a choice to breathe in, to breathe out. And from mm. that starting point, there is opportunity for change. And I think when we can simplify our existence to just that breathing in and breathing out, um, that gives us an opening that, that unlocks a little bit of a, an avenue or a path to begin to explore and move down. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what's, when you think about your job, your daily job, what's been some of your most challenging but rewarding experiences as a psychotherapist? Um, you know what, it's funny because I, there are, there are obviously individuals that stand out over the years and I often wonder why, why those individuals stand out because everyone that I work with takes the same form in terms of it doesn't matter whether they're male, female, old, young. I originally started in, in, in adult work and then went on to, to do, um, take further specialism in child and adolescent work. And, and I think that working with children and adolescents is in its own right really re- rewarding, but it can mm, be yeah. really tragic as well. Um, yeah. But I think that there's just this sense of um, 
for me it's the the purpose or the reward comes in seeing people um embrace life as it as they deserve to as it should be it's not you know for me it's always I've always felt that it's a privilege to be invited into somebody else's world. This, yeah. this, you know, sadly, we, you know, as you touched on at the opening of the show, and as it says on the website, we live in a very symptom-driven culture that's all about achieving a reduction of symptoms and not really addressing calls. And addressing calls provides sustainable behaviour change over a long time. Um, and I think we've kind of been lost in this society of well, what I often refer to as a broken fixed model. If I feel low, if I feel depressed, if I feel anxious, if I carry a diagnosis, then I must be broken, therefore I need a fix. Actually, yeah. we're all individual souls that are determining our own path to, to, to a large extent. We only have a degree of control over our existence, but what we do have control over, we, we want to be able to exert that. So I think the reward comes from from seeing people begin to realize that and employ so i always use the phrase healthy selfishness there's two sides to every coin healthy selfishness and unhealthy selfishness and healthy selfishness mm. is about prioritizing self whereas unhealthy selfishness is actions at the expense of others or bringing about harm to others and when right. people can begin to prioritize themselves to me that becomes a magical moment you know and and i joke that you know if the world was a little bit more selfish and angry it'd be a happier place because you know in the, in the healthy form as it were um because actually we we care probably too much about what others think we worry about perception and all at the expense of self and that saddens mm -hmm. me and when i begin to see people uh, live a life that they deserve to live and and begin to experience the value that they deserve to reap that that's magic for me that's that's really really important yeah and it's really un interesting that you touch on that because over the last couple of weeks I've really been kind of looking at that whole self thing and you know yourself being in this kind of field we're very giving people and we often forget our own needs and mm -hmm. it's only been the last few weeks that I feel like I've suddenly looked at the whole aspect of my kind of like purpose and what I do. And I'm like, wow, I can't keep giving, giving, giving because my cup's getting emptier and emptier. And so the last couple of weeks, I've been really, really like ensuring that I have time for me. I have time to read because I enjoy reading. I have time. I've been, you know, I went swimming this morning before I started doing st like client stuff. And whereas before I'd be like, oh no, actually I'll just do this other bit of admin or do that. And it's, it's completely transformed my mindset. Mm, mm. There's that wonderful saying that says, you know, as a as a giver, you have to know your boundaries because the takers mm. don't know theirs. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, that, I don't say that in a derogatory way and that distinction between givers and takers and, and the world as good and bad. But, but ultimately, anyone in crisis or distress wants and needs. And, um, you know, if you're someone that, that is uh, compassionate, kind or, or, or works in a field or a profession that, that is there to support and guide people, um, it's very easy f to be it very easy to not not necessarily be sucked dry as it were but but your resources to become depleted because you want to help and you want to do more but those boundaries are really important um and that takes time i think that's practice that that's one of the things that i learned over the years that you know when when moving into this work moving into this discipline i, I just wanted to 
conquer the world. I just wanted to help all. I wanted everyone to be mm. happy. Yeah, but you sure. realize that you're not in control of that. I'm not in control of, of the patient or anyone I'm working with. They are in control. And when we begin to shift that focus away from us, we can then redefine our boundaries that little bit cleaner and that little bit clearer. But look, yeah. I, I don't mind sharing that hey you know we was due to speak last week weren't we and I had to yeah. bow because I was full and that doesn't mean you know when having sort of firm boundaries doesn't mean to say that we don't feel a sense of disappointment or frustration or upset or all of them emotions that a lot of society runs away from you know it pained me to to oh, bless you. Last week. Oh, but, but- no I completely understand you know at the end of the day I'm in a similar kind of work as you know and I've had to like move clients before and some of these clients they book like three four months ahead that's how my diary works mm-hmm. and like I'm in July at the moment so that's about two months ahead and then I might have to say oh sorry like I'm poorly or my child's poorly or something's happened and you know they've been waiting for all that time and so I get it I get that feeling but I think you come to a point where you have to allow yourself not to let yourself get into it if that makes sense like I step out of the situation as if I'm like a bird's eye view and so I send the message saying I'm really sorry I'm going to have to move this date and then I have to move myself away from the emotion because at the end of the day I'm only a physical human being and I can only do what I can do and so Mm. to sit there dwelling and feeling bad is not going to help anything or anyone so it is a tricky one though it is yeah and I, I like that I like that um that terminology move away from the emotion i think using that phrase shows a level of ownership and accountability and that that's part of what i talk a lot about in work you know we have a society Mm. that tends to run away or fear certain certain emotions but yeah sure it's observing isn't it it is you need to observe your emotion rather than and feeling it don't get me wrong feeling it to me is very important when it comes to bringing things in like manifesting because if you feel what you want then you're already connecting to that everything Mm. we want is there for us we just need to be on that vibrational frequency so i think it's very important to educate people to feel but when it comes to an emotion that maybe isn't so pleasant the best way to do it is just to observe it look at it and then maybe and say why do I feel like that what is it that's causing that emotion Uh, and look at it that way Mm, we 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 recalibrate our system by doing that because again what society has conditioned us to do is to be quite reactive with our emotions anything that Mm. creates a level of pain or discomfort we want to move away from now there is a primitive response uh that 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 we possess that um that moves us away from any form of pain and discomfort physical or emotional automatically yeah. but then society has almost uh drilled us to adopt similar um similar responses to emotional friction or conflict so we have to recalibrate the system to to pause or elongate that moment to understand what the emotion is, to mm. feel the emotion, and then take a level of ownership and choice to move away from it. Now, uh, you know w- what's important to understand is that, and this is this is a bit of a nerdy fact, but an important one. Um, there's 599 words in the English language that represent an yeah. emotion, but it's nowhere near enough. Like our emotional spectrum is probably in excess of three or four thousand words. So oh, we're already at a disadvantage of being able to articulate 
what we feel sometimes. Now, mm. out of that 599, we probably use a couple of dozen at best. We all use the standardized anxious, sad, happy, indifferent. Yeah you know, conflicted or, you know, and then, then we're at a stretch. So we kind of lump emotions together, but we, we need to slow the pace of our existence down. We have to slow the pace of our existence down because we are on like a collision course for, you know, implosion uh, because of the demand that we're placing upon ourselves. And, and, and unless we, unless we breathe, unless we sort of stop, unless we reflect, only then can we make an informed decision or an executive decision, like you said earlier, to move away from it. Um, and that choice is important. Like we said before, as long as we've got air in our lungs, we've got choice to breathe in and out. And I think a lot yeah. of people are almost de-skilling themselves of that choice. And, I, and I'm, I think we spoke about this. I'm sure we spoke about this before. We, we ended up speaking for hours. But um, when, when COVID hit, um, it was a really interesting observation in clinic because I, in in all the years that I've been in practice, uh, there's 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 this loss of existence that I see in in the majority. And then COVID came along, and all of a sudden, people started to go. I need to feel something. I need to yeah. find purpose in my life. And so a lot of people started to make decisions around changing careers, doing something differently, yeah. leaving relationships, starting relationships. And, um, and, and as empowering as that was, it was also quite tragic because I thought, wow, you know, it took this kind of life event to kind of stir people's systems to then make that decision. Whereas we should be, we should be kind of embracing life for what it is. Um, yeah. Every moment, but really. Think, but don't you think that that happens a lot? It's like this spiritual awakening. I feel like whenever I chat to a client, they they seem to have to go through something major for them to kind of wake up. And and in some ways, I was the same. I went through something really big and then woke up and was like, "What am I here for?" Except etc etc what's my purpose and I was only chatting to this the other day on a podcast with an astrologist actually um just saying that like you know we're going into the next phase where it's going to be food shortages and fertilizer issues and people are going to be like snatching food from the shelves this is what she was seeing in the planets which is lovely to look forward to and I was saying that that that's your next like phase of like waking up again I feel like we've got a bit comfortable again do you know what I mean by that mm. oh yeah and it takes yeah we're all getting a bit too comfortable again back into our everyday forgetting that we should be looking after nature like I saw someone the other day like throwing some litter and I'm thinking oh are they taking themselves back to COVID when people were coming out picking litter up like everyone seems to have forgotten a bit about like why we were kind of like well, not why we went through what we went through that's not the right term but what I mean is like I feel so many people just became more humanitarian and stuff and now suddenly it's like oh we're all okay again now and Mm. I I, I know what you mean I feel like it takes these big things for people to just not only wake up but also have a sense of compassion yeah uh, life it, it becomes it consumes us like that that's the bit that I think a lot of people lose sight of like a lot of the teenagers that I work with when they're going through that sort of that stage of neurological development, I often say to them that, you know, the problem with life becomes life itself insofar as it's relentless. It's forever asking of us. And, um, mm. we have to stop and pause. And I, I spoke to some interesting people over the years uh, on 
podcast that I've done and, you know, we're, we're sort of nature therapists and they were saying that, you know, a lot of sort of the fo- forest bathing exercises um, for some people that live in sort of cities, inner cities, whether it be London or anywhere in the world, find it difficult because they don't have that access to nature. And she said that um, you, you, you can find simplicity in nature everywhere. She said you can go and find yeah. a crack in the pavement where there's where there's yeah. life growing. I was and- about to say that. And do you know what, James, what's interesting is I say to clients, even if you have no access to, like I'm not right near a beach and I find the sea and the ocean so incredibly healing for me personally. Mm-hmm. Every single morning I go on Spotify and I will listen to beach waves for 10 minutes when I wake up. So before the kids wake up, I will kind of, I think my mind just wakes up knowing that I've got to do it because I don't even set an alarm clock. But that sets me off for the day and I don't need to be physically at the ocean. I can bring the ocean to my home. Yeah, these gestures, these simple gestures that I think they return such significant value they but do. are overlooked. So yeah, they are. the day it's very easy for the current of the day to carry us off in the direction that it chooses. But but by you doing that in the morning, you are establishing a level of control over yeah. the day rather than the day over you. And, yeah. and that grounding process, I think, is is so so significant in terms of um, you know our mind and our body being in unison and being present in the moment um because you, you know it, it, the number of people and i, I know i'm um i'm at fault for doing it on occasions where you automatically you might get up or you might be checking the news or you might check the phone or even if it's something like checking the weather you're already lost you've already lost that moment and then you're going yeah. in another direction. I'm not suggesting these behaviours are bad because, like you said in, in the opening of the show, and behaviour is a line of communication. So we have to be observant and we have to sort of understand that communication um, because failing to understand that is pointless. It, it yeah. just is, is, is really detrimental. Yeah, and exactly. And the thing is, sometimes I forget to set my um, Instagram posts. And so this morning I woke up and I had to post at 6am. So I was actually focusing on social media before I did the beach sounds. However, even though that was the case, even if you have to check your phone first and check the weather or check the news, I mean, I don't personally watch the news because it takes me straight out of vibration. And that's not in an ignorant way, but just because, yeah, just not uh, being an empathic. It just doesn't suit me. But even though I was on that social media, and I, I think I even looked at the weather this morning as well, I then moved myself back into that beach sound and it still managed to bring me back. So it, you can even, I mean, it, you know, even if you do make them, and it's not even a mistake, but even if you do think, oh gosh, I better check my work diary when I wake up. And people always say, oh, you should do your mindfulness straight away. But it doesn't even matter. Like, even if you no, think, oh, you know no. what? I, I didn't mean to do that, but I've done it now. And then you go back into that mindfulness. I can honestly say the way my mornings have been since doing that, my kids can be really, really full on in the morning. The seven-year-old is answering back a lot. She's at that age where she thinks she's 13. Um, <laughs> it's really testing. And before I started doing that, I found my mornings to be really like full on and I'd get into school and I'd feel a bit like, oh my gosh, I feel like my day's already like I've done it. 
But now I'm doing this, I it's taken me away from everything. And I feel like the way I'm reacting to them and how they're behaving is so much softer. And then because of that, they're not reacting to my reaction. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So the whole day changes. Everything about the whole energy of the house is different because of the way I am. Because obviously my husband's already down the office working. So I am the main person in the home when they're playing up. So if I'm not in that calm state, then it all goes completely wrong. Mm. So that accountability and ownership in the morning is is important. Yes. So it's taken me a, a real while. And I will honestly say to you, I would say probably pre-COVID, and maybe this is what was good for me in COVID really, um, I felt quite guilty. I used to feel quite guilty if I was learning more, studying more to get better at what I do. And I'd kind of go off to a spare room on a Saturday morning because that was the time I felt I had to do it because my husband was around. And I'd feel guilty like the kids would come in. But you know what? It took me a while. And now I don't feel any guilt about that selfishness because I'm realizing that actually, in truth, it's helping me to be better at what I do. It's good for me. It gives me space and time to be a better mum. And, you know, I think lots of people feel guilt. They actually feel guilt for it. Yeah. Guilt is a is a magic emotion, right? So guilt should only present on two occasions. If we've done something that we shouldn't have, or we haven't done something that somebody's asked of us. So when we look yeah. at those kind gestures to self, like listening to the um, ocean sounds or whether it be meditation or whether it be a cup of coffee and a biscuit, whatever it may be, those gestures are so alien to us in society. That, and what it comes down to is prioritizing self. We are raised in a culture that says prioritizing self is bad um, mm. on every level. But without prioritizing self, um, in this kind of relentless, never-ending, demanding world, we are going to end up starving ourselves of the goodness and the nourishment that we need. And you're right, that it's not about a prescribed model of doing things, doing X, Y, and then getting Z in the form of I have to do it at this time because sometimes life gets in the way and there are circumstances that prevent us doing it in a certain order. But as long as yeah. we can go back to that point and offer ourselves that gesture that does add value, we're always going to experience the return. And I always say to people, you know, like, you know, I do a thing where if, if I, we're extremely habitual creatures, terrible creatures of habit and, um, uh, you know, the way we walk upstairs will always lead with the same leg, the way we drive, <laughs> the way we brush our teeth. It's all in uh, what we call procedural memory. Um, and, and procedural memory is important because it opens up and frees up capacity for us to think about other things. Um, but we can get into bad habits sometimes, not the worst of habits, but they're not perhaps providing the return that we want. So it's always important for us to kind of reflect and uh, upon those at certain at checkpoints, if you like, once a month, every few months, what's working for me, what's not. And and if we manipulate some of these, uh, the movements of our day sometimes, we can we can actually draw a greater return. So getting up, if you get up at seven in the morning, set the alarm for 6.57 or 6.55 or 6.53. And those extra yeah. sort of two or three minutes, what it does, it just changes the, the rhythm of the brain, changes the rhythm of the, of the day. Then we can start to introduce other habits that bring about greater value, like 10 minutes of 
audio sounds, mindfulness and so on and so forth, breakfasts, being present, greeting the day on your terms. Um, and, and, and it has amazing results. But the other thing to stress is this. Life is a continual evolutionary process. And again, going back to that broken fixed model, symptom-driven society, just because something's working this month doesn't mean to say that it's going to be working for the next 12 months. No. So if we start to see life bleed in and, you know, we start to feel overwhelmed again or or anxious or depressed or we're eating more or we're drinking more and all of these behaviours are indicating that we're slightly out of balance, revisit it. Don't run away from it. Like you said, you know, connect with the emotion, understand where it comes from and then shift the behaviours of a society to determine whether we get a positive result. What I see constantly, and I was talking to a young girl in clinic earlier today, is that, you know, six years, at 10 years she started experiencing anxiety. She's now 16. And she said, I've gone from service to service and they just keep giving me um, sort of interventions, things to do, but I just can't stop crying. And every time I cry, then the intervention is no good to me because I'm already overwhelmed. I said, have, have anybody spoken about what's driving the emotions, What, why you're feeling this way? No, I've just been told what to do. And I, I heard the magic word from someone or a magic line that someone said to her is that, we're, you know, we're going to discharge her from the service because we can't do anything with her anymore and I thought Christ oh James intuitively I'm feeling that that's from a past life but we'll go on to that another day I'm literally tuning into her energy I can see uh, has she got kind of like a wavy hair yeah she did have yeah oh my god I can see her I can literally see her sitting with you that's from a past life and unfortunately James this is why I just wish that spirituality was in mainstream because like if we literally put all these different modalities together everyone could be fixed I know exactly what's causing that and it's not from here so we can sit there with her and go through all these things about her life now but she's not going to know why this is happening because I can see her in a past life so yeah anyway that's for another day (laughs) it's amazing I know we mentioned this before as well obviously my my um interest uh and 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 sort of openness to practice has always been that because I think there's an ignorance across the world and certainly in the world world of psychology that kind of dismisses a lot of spirituality but I I spent three and a half years on an inpatient unit psychiatric inpatient unit with um uh, 11 to 18 year olds and children like we said before um away from the recording are so so intuitive so open still very much uh, in contact with that spiritual self and um there was very much a almost a, 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 a spiritual context to the therapeutic approach that was provided on that unit um oh lovely and it was and and it really interesting because a lot of the practitioners or teachers that came onto the unit actually two of them had just popped into my mind they were the teachers on the unit um were really 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 spiritual in terms of the, 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 themself um and i suppose it informed their practice but they were the teachers they came on monday to friday and, and, and taught in yeah. the classroom but um and i and i think that there's an importance to that role in and around children because like we said before what we do and what society's done is we tend to intellectualize everything and society kind of dismisses the unseen or the unscientific or the unrecordable 
but that doesn't mean to say it doesn't exist. I, I was speaking to a pain patient yesterday, uh, again, six years of, of chronic pain. No, longer than that. It was longer than – well, it was a long period of chronic pain and um, multiple investigations. Uh, oh, my gosh, Jay. James, I'm seeing an image again. <laughs> so I, I am, said to him, I am. <laughs> just, just because this, this, the medicine is not advanced enough to understand or see what, what the pain is doesn't mean to say that there's, there's not some trauma there. You know, look, we talk a lot about psychosomatic pain. Yeah, because um, it ends up making the child think that they're making it up. And this yeah, is what saddens yeah. me so much because, in all honesty, we're, our souls are eternal. But if you were to talk to a doctor about this, like I'll chat to a doctor, they'll ask me what my occupation is when I, if I've been to the doctors ever. And they kind of, on the odd occasion, have sniggered. And I find that quite condescending wow. anyway. But I sometimes just really wish we could incorporate like psychics, mediums with doctors because half the time I feel like psychics can tell someone what's wrong with them without you know needing to get a textbook out and looking yeah. up what what's what. And I just feel sorry for some of these children because they're sitting there and the doctor's like, well, can't find anything. And then the child thinks, well, it's me. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I just saw then with that person, that was past life as well. Mm. <laughs> crazy yeah, well it would um well i need you in i need you in a clinic room <laughs> oh bless do you know what I, that, i'd love session. i'd love eventually to, to 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 work more in that way i think it's so important to implement that um and start bringing those sort of modalities together because at the end of the day psychotherapists have all that knowledge and you have so much wisdom when i talk to you things that i know nothing about and so you can complement each other. Like you've got your niche and I've got my niche. So getting those two together is like gold dust. Mm. Isn't I, I it would, really? It, it, it is. And I think that, that for me there is um, – knowledge is, is a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. Um, but it but it's – like from my perspective, it's, it's a purely selfish thing. It's my fascination and wanting to understand um, – us as a species so much more but but ultimately in terms of practice i think that there is such a simplicity that we have to adopt because life is complicated enough and and that was what yeah. i learned the hard way over the years and spent sort of four or five years of just feeling as though that there was you had to get the right approach for the right person and then recognizing that there's there's no right or wrong there, no. there just is and and i yeah. think when we can recognize and realize that you know, in the grand scheme of things, that we're all pretty similar. Um, yeah. And our desire to experience happiness, as it were, comes from a position of freedom and a liberated state. And and when we can start to – I read once that we're only ever really in control of between 10 and 30% of our sort of global existence, our day or our entire life, which means 70 to 90% of our life is what happens to us. When we can begin to shift that focus and realize that actually – what did it – someone said recently that – we're only ever in control of what's inside of us and what's immediately in front of us. So that's that 10 to 30%. When we can, when we can recalculate that and realize that actually, as long as I am focused upon, you know, the now, the here and now, yeah, yeah. Um, 
we're giving ourselves the best shot and that is quite liberating in terms of the yeah. mind you know um because it's like the old cliche of you know traveling to work and then hitting traffic and then getting really cross and overwhelmed and angry and that closes your existence down completely whereas we're not in control of the traffic the weather the birds the accident what we are in control of is opening the windows turning radio up ringing work and saying i'm really sorry i'm going to be late you know that's the bit that we can employ so all of that unnecessary exposure to discomfort is what we don't want to have yeah, and what you also find, which is quite fascinating from some research I've been doing lately, is that when we do get in that state of irritation, so for example, you said about the accident, you're then actually in alignment for more irritation. So you're irritated by the car and you've got yourself all wound up and then you'll be irritated by someone that says something or you'll start attracting mm. more of that irritation. So then someone might start just being rude to you or something might happen where someone, I don't know, trod on your toe. Or so I, I can't, it's just examples, but yeah, you're already no, yeah. in alignment for more of that irritation and we're human beings so the word beings means we should be Mm. we shouldn't have we shouldn't want we should just be so being in that present moment and working with how we feel in that present moment and you know the other day uh, something happened and this woman just started kicking off at me and I just kind of said to her gosh you seem really angry like what is the matter and she was just swearing in front of my kids and I was like oh do you know what? I'm going to move away from you. And I just walked off. Now I could have retaliated. I could have sworn back. I could have got really angry, but what was, what mileage would it have been at the end of the day? She was, tr- she had a trigger within her. It was nothing to do with me personally. It was something within her own self. And I was just a reflection pointing back at her. And so she felt the need to shout at me because she didn't know where else to express it. so you know it's interesting when we look at elements like that like you say just being in that present moment and looking at every scenario and how we can like observe and and do things in a better way yeah it becomes all consumed it's that choice element again as well like you said you could have been sucked in and like a vacuum into that that anger and the discomfort that 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 lady was experiencing for whatever reason um and it's very easy to do that. And a lot of people do fall into that trap, you know, from a defensive perspective. But it takes a um, – so it, it, it takes a sort of evolved, mature, controlled mind to be able to um, – to be able to step away from that um, and to, to, to take ownership of our emotions. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we get it right all the time. And, and, and you know, sometimes it's important to experience setbacks or get things what we believe to be wrong because those provide opportunities for learning. Oh, and learning absolutely. Provides Le- growth. Learning. Yeah, exactly. So there's this yeah. state of not reaching – there's no such thing as perfection. There's this there's complete illusion. <laughs> I know. Um, I, I, yeah. So I think that, you know, often I'll say, you know, the beauty of being a human being is that we're imperfect creatures. And, and actually those flaws in the system um, remind us of what we're seeking or what's important. And, and so, again, not falling into the trap of, of seeking this perfect state, this perfect state of equilibrium, because actually a little bit of chaos is really crucial. Now, so there's a chap called Eckhart Tolle. I I, um, I encourage a lot of people, very, very um, massive crossover from spirituality and, um, uh, and psychology. 
And he says, um, oh, man, I'm not going to do it justice. I wonder if I've got the book to hand. Um, so he says that uh, – oh, it's on the other side of my office. Right, so there's a book called – um, let me see if I can see it. I've here. read the book. And it's right, really strange because everyone raves about it. All right, okay. Yeah, so one this with all life. So he there's a there's a piece in there where he says that the human mind, what what we've done in society is we've um we like order and that's that's been cultivated by society. Um and I'm paraphrasing this bit, but he says when we go into a forest, the brain um, and the consciousness really struggles with the chaos that's in a forest. So we much prefer to go into a stately home with well-manicured gardens because there's order to it. But he right. says we need to acclimatise our mind to the chaos of the forest because that's what nature provides us with. There is yeah. there is a reason and a purpose for everything in that forest. The tree has fallen there. It's decaying because it needs to be there. It's feeding the undergrowth, et cetera, et cetera. Beautiful, yeah, yeah. beautiful piece and chapter on it um because we're just craving this order but actually yeah. chaos if we can embrace that a little bit more again it's really great yeah for and i think it's in. really i think it's really important to teach our children that too but i also kind of going back to that don't you find as well that i feel that as an ancestral pattern it should be our job as parents or adults to ensure that we cut that ancestral pattern so for example that happened with me with that woman. Now I could have lashed out, but my kids were there observing me and watching how I was reacting. And what I want to do is show them that that is not the way to to act or react or treat somebody. So it's Mm. really interesting when we look at that and we observe that because it's that thin line between kind of getting in those situations, but actually teaching your children about how not to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I love that phrase as well, ancestral pattern. Um, So talk about crossover and look how the world of psychology has made it different. So we would call that intergenerational behaviours. See, I love this because you've just taught me a new (laughs) word. And so I come completely from a spiritual background, know barely anything about psychotherapy, but yet what you've just done then, you've just taught me a new word that I can maybe implement with with my <laughs> ancestral <laughs> yeah it was an ancestral pattern. I love it because it is exactly, it's one of the same thing. It is these behaviors yeah. that are passed down. And, and, you know, as, as creatures, you know, there's, you, you observe a, a young child and, uh, they, their point of reference is their primary caregivers, is their parents. Of so, course, they look up to them. So if yeah. their parents are effing and blinding, they're going to effing and blind. And if their parents say this, they're going to do that. Um, it's so important how we behave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you watch a child, right, so when, when a toddler is is manoeuvring the world in the way that they do with all of their excitement and, and, and hunger for, for hunger for more, if there's a knock at the door, <coughs> excuse me, um the child won't look who's at the door the child will look at the parent who's opening the door and determine their response by what the parent does and that happens all throughout our childhood all throughout our uh, late childhood and into early adolescence and sometimes into adult as well depending on development so no matter what we do um our children will be referencing against us. And again, look, this mm. is not applying a level of pressure to parents and my God, I'm no, not a perfect parent. No, absolutely not, yeah. 
you know, even that as a parent is important. You know, a lot of the parents that I see in, in clinic, I'll say, you know, this, this is a rather, um, it's not the greatest of examples, but, but an important one that, you know, I'll say to parents, uh, you know, if we're upset and we're crying, uh, a child will say, why are you upset, mummy? Why are you upset, daddy? If you say, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm fine. What a child won't do is go, oh, you know, they're obviously, you know, I don't know, feeling a bit not great or, you know, a bit embarrassed. So uh, I'll I'll, let, I'll leave them be. What a child will do, because they don't have that depth and perception, what a developing child will do is go, well, mommy or daddy, they're, they're crying. There's, there's you know, Their eyes are leaking. So that normally means upset, but I must have got it wrong. So what yeah. we do is we can end up creating this legacy where a child um, starts to create an infrastructure that, and this is a quite dramatic example, but an infrastructure where they've kind of got a flaw in the system where they start to personalize it and believe that they've got it wrong. So as parents, yeah. the level of transparency and congruence and genuineness and openness that we can offer our children is is crucial. That mm. Then we're creating a modeling behavior that shows, you know what, it's okay to be upset, it's okay to be angry, it's okay to be sad, and I don't have to be frightened frightened or fearful of these emotions now equally the example you you used it was about choice it was about not being sucked in but it wasn't about shying away from the emotions either and no I mean my kids knew that I wasn't happy about it because when we got back in the car this is the weirdest thing so this happened a while ago but my three-year-old I went to the post office this afternoon and it was exactly the same space now she's three years old and she said oh mummy that's where that lady shouted at Mm. you And I'm like, how she remembered that? So clearly it stays within their subconscious mind. But we did chat about it in the car and they were both a little bit worried by her. They were like, oh, gosh, do you think the police will come? And I said, oh, don't Mm. worry, it's fine. But we did discuss it and we did say, oh, you know, that's not the way you behave. Because otherwise, if I just brush it under the carpet, that's not the way to go either. So you're right. It's about expressing the emotion and observing it and talking about it, but, but doing it in the right way. Yeah. And like when I said earlier, if the world was an angrier or more selfish place, it would be a happier place to exist. I don't mean that form of anger. <laughs> that, no, that but you're kind of giving an example of, of it. It's important. And do you know what, James? I know exactly what you mean. And I'll tell you why. Because we don't realise and we're not educated enough in society to realise as well that holding that anger inside transmits into disease. It's disease yeah, it's, in the yeah. body. So then we have illnesses and emotional imbalances, and which is all my path of healing. And so it's all very well saying, you know, we shouldn't show an emotion but actually by us holding it in and literally building it up we're just changing our cells within our body we're creating an imbalance so you're totally right mm. it's like you're constantly filling up a factory with barrels of gunpowder it yeah, becomes such a volatile space yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely so, so, so do the- you know what because sorry no, no, no. Go, 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 please. No, I was just going to move on to something else. So we've obviously just had Mental Health Week recently. And mm. so I just really wanted to talk about, obviously, within your clinic, you have a lot of this kind of thing. And I wanted to talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and what makes us happy. So how do you feel you can get a balance in life in order to have a good sense of emotional well-being and happiness? Do you have any good tools that you can offer the viewers? So, So for me... There's, uh, I break it down to f- four key constituents. So there's, there's, there's four basic areas that I live by and I practice by in clinic as well. One, one is the, um, is self-awareness, you know, maintaining a good, ripe, 
rich level of self-awareness is is crucial what am i feeling how am i thinking what's working what's not working and and you can obviously go into much greater depths in terms of self-awareness like we've spoke about already in terms of um you know our internal uh, infrastructure our core beliefs uh, our values what we live by and obviously there's therapeutically or clinically speaking you can go into great depth with that but self-awareness is that is that key area what's working for me what's not the soft gestures that we apply um, the next one is self um, regulation so how do I respond to situations so the example of the the angry lady in um in the post office, that's a good example. How did I respond? I love could this. I, the angry, like, that's going to be a famous one now. The angry yeah, lady in the post office. Yeah, <laughs> angry lady in the post office. If you ever write a book, I want a chapter titled <laughs> The Angry Lady in the Post Office. Um, <laughs> but yeah, self-regulation. So understanding what works for us and not. That that ties in with some of the behavior patterns that we spoke of. Um, noticing if we're drinking a little bit more, eating more, eating less, not going to the gym, not looking after ourselves. So self-regulation, all of those. Yeah. Um, techniques and the, the the third one is more of a controversial one and what a lot of people struggle with and that's self and others so beginning to identify our sense of identity and establishing and cultivating that level of healthy selfishness that's where that sits and as I say a lot of yeah. society a lot of patients that I work with do struggle with that phase and we spend a fair bit of time on that and then the last phase really when you're kind of maintaining those other three pillars is self-reliance which is trusting in ourselves. and like I say we're we're not perfect you know and and that's there's some real magic in that you know there's magic in the mistake so um if we concentrate on those four areas self-awareness self-regulation self and others where we fit into this crazy world and self-reliance we're not going to go far wrong no, and it's really interesting you talk about trust because that's such a big part of my work like that because obviously being an intuitive, I very rarely doubt what I feel, but that's obviously something like an ornate thing within me, but I'm always trying to teach my clients to just trust, you know, go with that heart and, and that inner feeling and if it goes wrong or it doesn't work out, you you still went with how you felt and I feel like we're always taught to go with what our brain's telling us rather than really what we're feeling inside. Mm, there's, 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 there's uh, some really interesting um, books out. One's called um, a guy named, I think oh, I want to say Steve Lomas, but he was a footballer for West Ham. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it's someone Lomas, Peter Lomas, I think it is. Uh, so he wrote a book called Cultivating Intuition. That's a very, very good book. Um, yes, all about I've heard of that, that one. Yeah, all about that sort of lost sense of um, that intuitive self and how, uh, again, the, the brain has taken priority. There's, there's another one called The Second Brain but, uh, where it talks about all the different uh, all the sort of different systems within the body and the billions of nerve endings and how over centuries we've kind of nullified um, and diluted that intuitive self. And, and when you – I think it might be in that one, The Second Brain – but it talks about all of these different um, in different cultures, but also different tribes that that name different brains. They've got like a head brain, a heart brain, and a belly brain, and and they oh, lead the and thing. make decisions. Like, in this Western society, we're so focused on our brain and what our brain does. In actual fact, the heart is the first organ that's created in the womb when when mm. we're be, when we're being created. And so that to me tells me a lot about how important our heart is, in my opinion. Yeah, and we, you know, look, 
you mentioned there the clients you're working with and and and, uh, and encouraging them to go with their gut and you know listen to that intuitive self because that's where these stains come from you know trusting our gut listen to our gut butterflies in our stomach all of these sort of all of these tummy and and, and core messages um but for me and and, and again look we're talking about the, the that that crossover is is a definite theme uh in our conversation and there is this massive crossover because i like you are doing the same um in in a sense of encouraging individuals to cultivate that confidence in self that trust in self to listen to what we're labeling the feelings to listen to the body and how that energy is resonating through us but there is a point uh well what i always term it is it's, it's reaching that point of surrender and reaching a point of surrender comes in a multitude of different fashions um it's about giving up old ways, these sort of internalized habitual behavior patterns that we have to let go of. We're not asking yeah. ourselves to eradicate them because they're, they're well-trodden paths, but we have to let go of them. Now, interestingly, you see a lot of society remain in a period of discomfort and distress because it's much more comfortable. Now that's madness. It is absolutely yeah. madness because madness. we'd much rather be in discomfort and pain because it's familiar to us than run the risk of giving that familiar pattern up uh, for the hope of, of, of achieving happiness. But what if it don't work out? So that fear cripples us. It cripples us. Yeah. So we don't give up it's these like behavior It's like a pride patterns. thing, isn't it? It's like a pride thing. And they often say it takes about 28 days to change a kind of um, – uh, like a, a, a habit or like a way of doing something. But yes. I always feel as well that I think this stems a lot from very, very young, like, you know, in school where we're told, oh, no, that's not right, or a parent will. And so we start to doubt what we think and what we feel. Yeah, we we, we are. I mean, look, uh, the, the, the education system and schooling oh, as an institution. That's for a whole other day. Yeah, that's for I reckon a whole day. <clears throat> feel about a 10-hour show. Um yeah, we are. We're not taught. I've worked with this amazing educational psychologist once, and and she oh, wrote her PhD thesis on being an independent thinker, and it was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, oh, it was just utterly fascinating in terms of how we should be nurturing children to think for themselves. But what we what we do is we it's a one size fits all, and it's very much. And I'm doing it a disservice. There's some amazing schools and teachers out there, um, but it is a one size fits all. And uh, delivered in, in 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 one sort of narrow avenue, and so therefore it does teach us to almost think in certain ways. And if we start to move from that path or deviate from that path, we we immediately start to feel um, a sense of um, discomfort because we feel that mm. we're not conforming or we're not part of the pack. And so yeah. that creates, a, again, generates anxiety and a fear and a like worry. It's kind of like black sheep theory, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. We, we become a little bit ostracized or outcast because we're not conforming. So, but whereas if we can, if we can nurture this next generation to be, uh, you know, really broad thinkers, independent thinkers and, 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 and challenge what's there. My son, he's, so he's doing his GCSEs actually. We had this really interesting conversation the other day and he said, I'm doing Macbeth and I just can't, I just can't get to grips with it. It's, it. English is not not is is more engineering than that. But Aww. he said um, he said like they've been studying. He said I watched this really interesting YouTube video. He said like we've been studying Shakespeare for you know 
years and years and years and years and years and years. But why? And I was like, that's a really interesting question. That's the type of thing my daughter would say, and I yeah. love that. It's thinking yeah. outside the box at the end of yeah. the day. And it, that kind of thing will get him so far in life. Like people think, oh, you know, you shouldn't like, you know, say what you think. It's not. So, but actually, you know what? I reckon by about 2032, because that's how I feel like this world is going to be really of change by then. He is going to stead so well thinking outside the box. Well, it is just looking at it and saying, just because we've done it for this long, why do why, does why it, is it? Yeah, why is why it, is it uh, the yeah. right thing to still continue to do? Because he said there yeah. must be other texts that are much more challenging and current and yeah. very much relevant. Um, not dismissing Shakespeare, but. Um, no, I'm not dismissing Shakespeare either, but I always wonder, like, why we go back to times like so this is a, a bit of a weird example well it's not actually but I thought we we're going off t- like going off a bit here but so my daughter was studying um about like the greatest women and there was one episode she was watching um and I can't think of the lady's name something parks I think oh, she's a, yeah, anyway yeah, on the bus anyway she's um, she's a black lady I believe yeah yeah she was so she's what that the, was yeah on sorry the bus, carry on. Did she? Yeah, no, yeah. I, know. I can't think of her first name as well, but yeah, 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 it was the Black yeah, Rights so Movement. Yeah, so they were discussing that, and then they were also talking about slavery and the black slaves. So what this was doing was my daughter comes from a home where everybody's equal, we never talk about any kind of differences because we're all, like, obviously being spiritual, I see us all as souls with this, like, this biological spacesuit that we wear so it's like we're not actually this is just what we've chosen to come here in but actually we're eternal and we're all part of this big you know interconnected universe so she's then starting to wonder why we're different color and why and and starting to actually move away from and separating us because she was like well they were slaves and and looking down a bit and I thought this is exactly my point about schooling why are we even bringing up this kind of thing like what is it achieving because these kids have come into this world and we're trying to move on with the times and then you're bringing back to separation and divide again Mm. do you know what I mean by Mm. that Mm. yeah it is um I I think that it makes for a fascinating conversation around um the the content and the curriculum and why certain um periods are chosen mm. why certain topics are taught and the potential value in society and how it influences our children but yeah and it's all very low vibe uh, coming from a spiritual perspective it's very low vibration trauma and you know separation and there's no kind of connection there it's just literally dividing people yeah, see that's oh, see again now. I'm now you've got me going. Um, <laughs> but, this is because, for a whole nother scene. Yeah, I know. I'm going to try and I'm going to try and uh, reel this in so not go too yeah. far. Because ultimately, when being able to in, like for me, there's this there's this deep sense of um, uh, nourishment in, in terms of seeing children just play and get out and climb trees so they yeah. do that, that wonderful movement about 10 years ago in schools they set up that sort of forest forest schools where they where they go out and they be in nature it becomes part yeah, of what so it is my kids do that curriculum. at their school yeah and, and I think there's some real there's some real um 
magic in children being able to do that. I, I think I think we start that formal process of education in this country far too early and the pressure just builds from sort of, yeah. you know, we board the train at five years old when we start school and we don't get off till 18 or 21, 22 when we leave university or, or A-levels. And we're taught how to learn and we all do it in the same way. And it takes a very long time post-education for an individual to unravel it and find their sense of self. Yeah. Um, We're we're like lost lambs when we leave. In my opinion, we're all like lost lambs. And we're all made to – I felt like I was a failure because I wasn't good at mathematics Mm -hmm. and sciences, academics. However, I was really good at art and um, writing and music, all those creatives, which often you find with spiritual people anyway. But I kind Mm. of started to think, oh, gosh, because I wasn't doing well in all the things that they tell you you should be good at. So I've come full circle because with my daughter, who's amazing at art, loves dancing, loves singing literally the same patterns I'm just embracing it and every day I'm saying to her keep drawing you know so because I've learned from that so in some ways you could say I'm changing that ancestral line but then Mm. there's a lot of parents out there that don't think like I do and they're not sure how to do that so like you say it's just like you come out and you're like you've just got to start literally working from the beginning again Mm. oh yeah absolutely but then that that that's that part of understanding self doing that work on self trusting being intuitive listening to self and that's what breaks those ancestral patterns Mm, because we're not determined by the the, the, well the environment in which we're raised does play a significant part on a on a child's upbringing of course it does they'll always be a product of their environment but ultimately when we reach a state of um let's term it adulthood where we've got a greater independent mind um then then we can start to determine and work our way through what we want to hold on to what we want to keep what we want to rid ourselves of but at the end of the day where you, you, you used the phrase earlier so how you see your family did you say spiritual souls you're all in um what yeah, well, we're eternal beings, really. Eternal beings, yeah. So eternal, so, yeah. So, so we're you know we're formless, if you like. So the, the the vehicle in which we exist, the skin and bones, if you like, is just that. It's a vehicle in which we exist. But that independent mm. and and a lot of this, and as I say, I'd urge anyone who's listening to 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 pick up and start reading. Well any book of Eckhart Tolle's with regards to that because he does he sees us as being well he talks about the um the form the physical form and the formless being the conscious yes. mind the soul the energy and yeah. um, and and actually when we can begin to really refine that 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 self um actually then there's there's a potency and a powerfulness that is that you just can't look past because then you're automatically embodying a much greater level of whether it be enlightenment or consciousness or awareness of where we sit in the world. Um, yeah. So it's not about conforming and not conforming. It's about setting your own path uh, and yeah. determine what direction we go in based upon the vibrations or the energy levels or our reactive states or what, invitations but the problem is as well the problem is as well like obviously you've been reading and and that's amazing there's so many people out there that don't know of these people or don't have that knowledge of reading because they just don't know where to find it and what I often find with clients is I'll have I had a lady the other day in her 50s and she was 
literally playing out the same pattern. So her father was disappointed in her because she didn't have an academic background. And he said, oh, you're never going to be a success. He would paid for all this education at boarding school and she didn't do as well as he'd hoped. And then she was living with that. And then she had children and she was literally, I was sitting there saying, you're doing exactly to your children what your father's done to you. Now, obviously, once we chatted about it and I did some healing for her, we cleared all that from the subconscious. I reprogrammed all those files. But if she hadn't have come to me or come to you or read these books, that would just keep on and on. So the next generation and the next generation, until it is literally addressed, you're going to keep playing those patterns out. It is. Have you ever read the poem by a lady named Portia Nelson? Uh, I've heard of her, but I don't think I've read any so of her poetry. She, she wrote a poem called An Autobiography in Five Chapters, right? So I've just pulled it up. I whiz through oh, it really check quickly. you out with all your books on your shelf. I'm right. loving this. So it says, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. I still take. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. That's amazing. It's just literally in those few chapters, she's hit the nail on the head. It's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, exactly Um, what you were saying. It's so true. And this is what people don't see. They don't see those patterns. Like when you have people with alcohol addiction, you will often find that that will be happening in the next one or the pattern after that. So it might skip a generation, but you always see these addictions. It doesn't have to be alcohol, but there might be some other addiction. And, you know, if we don't kind of observe, then it's just going to keep happening. Yeah, and that is that that observe and that that observation and that. Yeah, we're back to the observing again, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, James, it has been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. I'm just looking at the time. It's supposed to be the healing hour, and uh, we're literally rolling into the healing two hours. Um, but it's been really wonderful and inspiring to speak to you today, James. Literally, I could talk to you for hours. I've been so looking forward to Likewise. this episode since we booked it in, and it's been incredible. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Well, no, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you for the invitation. And, you know, um, you know, I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, I'm sure we will be doing another one um, when I have series two. Um, no doubt, because mm. there's always a new topic to talk about. So anyway, you can find James on Instagram at James Roast. Actually, it's at James underscore Roast underscore. Um, and his website is www roastclinicservices.co.uk this is where you'll find all about him and his services and you can find me Hannah Olivia on Instagram at the girl healer and my website is www.thegirlhealer.com where you find information on all my healing modalities intuitive readings one-to-one life path sessions distant spiritual healing and workshops thank you so much for spending a wonderful hour with us today we hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we would love it if you could leave us a review tag us on social media Media, subscribe and tell your friends. Join us soon for the next Healing Hour podcast with the Girl Healer. Bye for now.